That would be my big Gabbo gaff. Uh, what, what did Gabbo actually say? I'm trying to remember. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Okay, guys, we just recorded first half of our discussion of September 1963 in Marvel Comics. And now let's go ahead and jump in with the second half of September 1963. We are now going to be getting into discussing Tales to Astonish, number 47, featuring Ant-Man and the Wasp. Okay, here we go with a five-minute synopsis, hopefully. Jan and Hank are breaking up a robbery. Turns out that what was being robbed is the largest gem in the world, the Star of Ghana. Now, Ghana's in Africa, but this apparently came from India, and I think the name actually changes later. I think they they mix up the name. So then the guy who has it, who presumably is Indian, although they color him like a European person here, so I don't know how they are, how they do it in your issue. Yeah, it is. He talks about India, his native land, known for strange mysteries and occult powers like oof so yeah. and then at one point he talks about somebody called uh gazandi who actually has real mystic powers and can hypnotize people with his music but he has to be very careful or else he can accidentally hypnotize himself but i'm sure that won't be relevant in any way later in the story jan is able to drag hank out to a jazz club we find out that hank is so square he doesn't even know who count basie is so then as they are leaving the jazz club the cash box is being robbed it turns out that it is being robbed by the horn player who is playing that evening because he's not a great horn player so he doesn't make that much money so he figured robbing the jazz club would be the best way to make some money for not the first time this month We have the owner of the jazz club saying, because you've been a good horn player for me in the past, I won't press charges. And that, of course, ends up being a problem later. Then we have a cutaway to where this guy goes off to India and finds Gazandi. So it's not clear at all if he is Indian himself. Again, he's colored like a Caucasian. So the jazz club owner is like, oh, I'm going to be a nice guy. Mm -hmm. Traco, I'm not going to press charges. I'm going to get you a ticket on the first plane out of the country because of our friendship. Just don't come back, you hear? I'll take the cost of the ticket out of the wages I owe you. Which is worse here, going up for (laughs) a year in prison or being expelled from the only country you've ever known and loved for life? You know, I don't know about, I don't know Uh, which is worse. He might have been Indian in the first place. I, I'm not sure. He gets Gazandi to teach him the special hypnotizing music powers, which remember, be careful because you could accidentally hypnotize yourself. Not that that will become relevant in any way. He then comes back to the States and he now has a whole turban get up and a cravat and all sorts of stuff to make him look like Esquivel or something like that. But now he's using his hypnotism powers to be able to rob his audiences. Hank gets word from the ants that there's this magic trumpet player. Jan is like, hey, that's Trago. Don't you remember that jazz club we went to? And then they listen into the music and they realize that it's breaking their brains. So they shrink down where I guess supposedly the sound doesn't hit their ears the same way when they're shrunk down and the ants come and rescue them. So they take him down to the ant hill and then a snake comes in. So he uses a shrinking gas to shrink the snake. At that point, they then go out to the jazz club. We have this great sequence where Ant-Man gets inside the piano and we get yeah, to see You know, him. I love, I always love in Ant-Man sequences whenever he's like inside machinery, which is right. you know, a fun thing you can do with shrinky characters. And there's a beautiful sequence of him getting down between the piano keys and then inside the percussion of the strings inside it is gorgeous and then he bounces on a bunch of drums and then jumps into the bell of the trumpet he actually wrecks the trumpet from the inside then as it turns out as he's trying to still do his hypnotizing thing he ends up accidentally playing a note that hypnotizes himself so then he goes back to being just a mediocre trumpet player again, but no longer a criminal. But then at the end, we actually end on sort of a poignant note. Hank is sad because one of the ants that was helping him ended up dying in that snake attack. He actually is feeling badly for his aunt named Kor, K-O-R-R-R. Oh, and there's my five minutes. And they very much will call that back in the first Ant-Man movie where he names one of his ants and really likes it. Then that ant gets shot. You wouldn't think an ant could get shot with a bullet, but it does. So they very much call back this issue. In terms of the art, I really do like some of the art on this last page here, particularly the silhouette panel uh, on the bottom row very much looks like a panel in the famous Wally Woods 20 however many panels that always work. 
Yes. Oh, what is it? 23 panels? 22, I think. Yeah, that looks like that's straight out of the Wollywood <laughs> guide. Yeah, I really like this last page. Work. I like this issue a lot more than I like Iron Man this month. I think he does a great job with the jazz club and just sort of mm-hmm. this jazzy milieu. I think he really does well with Hank and Jan as these fashionable people. The bottom left panel on page three at the jazz club is really nice. I think that the final panel of the story is they walk away yeah. into the city, basically in silhouette is a nice looking panel. I think it's interesting that once again, he's got his lasso and she's got her pin that she flies around with. It's very, very strange that suddenly they have these weapons. I'm not sure how long this lasts. Certainly these days, I don't think you're going to read any stories in which Hank Pym has a lasso or Janet Van Dyne has a pin that she goes around and pokes people with. It's very strange. But I thought this was a fun story. I thought it was fun to have the jazz milieu as a different sort of milieu for this sort of story. and. I always love stories in which Ant-Man gets shrunk down into full-size stuff, and it's right away on the cover. It's got a gorgeous cover. They're seemingly Kirby Ayers cover, I would guess. You see giant fingers playing a piano and Ant-Man's on the keys. One of the things that I find interesting in this, too, is when this falls in American cultural history, I would have been in the of the assumption that Hank would be the kind of guy who would be like, no, I'm more for a jazz club, whereas Jan would want to go listen to rock and roll records. um no she wants to go to a jazz club and he doesn't even know who count basie is yeah you're right rock and roll (laughs) is not even part of the equation yet jazz is still the young hip music that young people like jan like and not old guys like hank but soon elvis would wait no (laughs) (laughs) so let's move on to x-men our mutants one note that i missed when we were going through thor is that merlin refers to himself as a mutant Oh, I didn't notice that. He says he has no magical powers at all. He has mutant abilities. He just used like cauldrons and potions and stuff like that just to sort of have a reason why he had these powers in ancient times. And this is the same month when X-Men comes out. So this I don't think is any coincidence. I think that this whole mutant idea was something that was really getting into Stan's head. And so that's why, you know, sometime around this point when the Fantastic Four annual comes out, they end up talking about Namor as a mutant. They talk about Merlin as a mutant. And now we're about to have a whole team of mutants introduced. Okay. Yes, you're right. That's fascinating. But then later they'll talk about like, oh, why were all these mutants being born all of a sudden when X-Men number one happened? It's because of nuclear tests. At one point, Charles Saver says like, oh, I'm probably the first mutant because my parents worked at Los Alamos. That's why I was the first mutant. And that's why all these other mutants are being born. You know, they'll sometimes refer to as the children of the atom and who are being born with mutant powers because atomic radiation testing in the air. So then that doesn't really match with this whole idea that Namor was a mutant or Roland was a mutant or these older characters were mutants. That's sort of advanced and receded over time, whether yes. this really has to do with the Adam age or whether it's just something that was accelerated by that or something. Yeah, like that. I think that's the general idea, because as soon as mutants enter the picture, which happens with this monumentous issue, as soon as mutants enter the picture, it becomes such an easy thing to do. Like, oh, you know, we no longer have to come up with all these origins. And Stanley has said that that was one of the reasons he invented the X-Men is because he was tired of coming up with origins and he wanted to have spontaneously generating powers that people would just get to make his job a lot easier. And of course, once they start doing that, the can of worms is opened. Okay, well, now, anytime we don't want to do an origin, even for older characters, we can just declare them to be mutants. Yep. I can't decide whether I would rather describe X-Men number one or Avengers number one because I have a lot to say about both these. So if, I have I notes guess, on Avengers number one and I don't have notes on X-Men number one. So I okay. would like it if you do X-Men and I will do Avengers. Feel We can each feel free to butt in on each other's stuff as much as we need to. Okay, I have a tremendous amount to say about Avengers number one. So I'm going to interrupt you frequently and there, there will be no timer on these two issues so I can interrupt my heart's content. <laughs> So we start off with X-Men number one. Don't miss this fabulous first issue in the sensational Fantastic Four style, X-Men versus Magneto, Earth's most powerful supervillain. And then we have a very iconic cover that has been called back to many, many times, including the greatest selling comic of all time, the next time they do X-Men number one in 1991. That will be one of many, many covers that will be a callback to this one. But I got to say, it's a weird cover. It It is is a strange cover. So right away, whenever you have a winged hero, and this is also true of winged villains, but especially true of winged heroes, it's always like, oh, it's so cool. They have wings. They can fly. And then instantly it's this issue of like, but what good does that do you? 
Like, what offensive power do wings even have? How can you beat somebody up because you have wings? And how can you attack somebody, certainly under the ranged weapon, if you have wings? It doesn't make any sense. And so then you will always have this big problem with winged heroes when it's time for them to actually do something. What are they going to do? So we have here on the cover of X number one, they're introducing one of the most famed winged heroes in Marvel history. And he has a bazooka. He is. I thought that was just like a, a, a big old metal pipe that he had just oh. picked up in the danger room. Well, why attack a magnetic villain with a metal pipe? You would think, how about a wooden pipe? <laughs> <laughs> yes, how about a peace pipe? I don't know. Yes, it, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it, no, it makes no sense. It's Maybe it is. Maybe it is plugged up. Maybe it is just a big metal pipe. I always saw it as a bazooka, which would be a big admission right away at the beginning here that we have no idea what to do with Angel. And so you get this with Hawkman and Hawkgirl and Hawkwoman have you know, these electrified maces that they are flying around with, or at least that's how they did in the Justice League cartoon. I really dislike in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Falcon, you know, has these wings and he can fly around. And then it's like, well, what good does that do him? So then he has Uzis. And like, <laughs> I just find that to be very distasteful to just have a Marvel Cinematic Universe hero who's just flying around shooting people with double Uzis. Also, I don't want to be that guy who's like, wait, this comic book physics doesn't work. But I would think just the kickback on firing two Uzis would really mess up your ability to stay in the air with your wings. So we've got Warren with possibly a bazooka, possibly just a big metal pole that he's going to throw at Magneto. Then we have the beast who is flying in on some sort of metal trapeze. What is that doing there? Where is that coming from? What's going on? We then have Jean Grey, Marvel Girl who, for some reason, Marvel Girl is just one of these superhero names that never sticks, and everyone will just always call her Jean Grey. She is presumably using her mental powers, but we don't see them. We don't see the little lightning bolts in the air, so she just seems to be striking a pose. We then have Cyclops, who is firing at Magneto with his eye bolts, and right away we're like, okay, that guy looks really awesome. You can see how he'll be the longest-lasting of these characters. And then we have Iceman, who does not look like an Iceman yet. He looks like a snowman, and indeed he is throwing snowballs at Magneto. And the snowballs, wonder of wonders, aren't doing much good because Be- because magnets because magnets, and also because <laughs> my own children from age one and up, I've been more than happy to throw snowballs at, secure the knowledge they will not cause them any harm. So, <laughs> well, Matt, that's because you're forgetting to put rocks in them. Yes, <laughs> then you'll really be able to knock those kids off their feet. It is a bizarre cover, but it is a gorgeous cover. It is nicely inked by Paul Reidman, who was credited with inking on the Fantastic Four cover this week. And I don't know, maybe he did it. You can tell he inks this cover. I think it is. I don't know. What do you think about Redman's inks? I love him. He is, I think, my favorite of Kirby's pre-Synot inkers. Oh, see, I don't like him as much as theirs, but I like him a lot. And I think he gets better and better as he goes along. I think by the time you get to like five issues from now, it looks really nice. Yeah, one thing I found is that the Kirby-Reinman combo here in these first several issues of X-Men really seemed to be where when Steve Rude, legendary 80s and beyond artist working for independent publishers like First Comics, co-creator of the legendary character Nexus, when he starts going more and more into his Kirby homage phase, I really see these Kirby Reinman X-Men issues as sort of being what he seems to be going for. I agree. I was going to say like Reinman on Kirby sort of looks like John Nyberg, who was one of uh, Steve Rude's <laughs> major you, inkers. There you go. Exactly. Then we go ahead and jump into the issue written by Stanley. Stanley is committing to this book. He is not having someone else script it. Drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Paul Reinman. We meet Professor X, who is not on the cover. He has got a little blanket over his legs to sort of indicate that he does not have the use of his legs. And he calls out with his mind to his students and has them come to him. And then we see these four X-Men, the four male X-Men, all arrive. Beast swings in through a window. Hank flies up on his wings. Scott is just, but of course, he's not Scott Summers in this issue. He's Slim Summers. <laughs> he comes up, just walking up, and then Iceman is swinging down an ice pole, even though he looks more like a snowman than an Iceman. They all arrive. They help adjust the blanket on his legs. You know, they haven't explicitly said he can't use them yet. He's not in a wheelchair. He's in a lounger. He's in a recliner. Then he's like, hello, my X-Men. And I forget, does he say yet what X stands for? Because they keep changing that yes. over the years. In this issue, he says that it refers to the extra power that each of them has from their mutant abilities. So X now, for extra. 
Do you think he knows that Extra begins with an E? I think that that's just his cover story. He's actually named them after him. He clearly has. These are clearly the X-Men because they work for Professor Xavier. Then he has to claim like, oh, no, I just named you because of your extra powers. If you misspell extra, dude, just to make you name these people after yourself. Yes. Really. So we are introduced to the Beast here. For you and me, Matt, we grew up, re- you know, our very first comic book had the Beast in it, right? That's true. I think. Yeah. But at that point, the Beast had long since been covered in blue fur and looked much more Beast-like. Going back and looking at these early X-Men issues with the Beast, he just looks like a dude with big hands and feet. <laughs> you know? I still don't quite get it. But he is a little bit furry in this issue. You know he, what? You're right. Even on the cover, if you look on the cover... His feet are furry. He's furry on page one as well. He's sort of hobbit-like. Yeah, he's sort of hobbit-like. He starts off furrier than he will later be, but it is a weird nickname. They later decided if he's going to be called the Beast, let's have him be more bestial. But in this first issue, yeah, he's sort of got a simian body type. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So they call him the Beast, which is a somewhat odd name and then later made more sense. Also, he does not yet have his precocious, loquacious kind of way of speaking yet that he will definitely pick up over time to sort of be an ironic counterpoint to his brutish appearance. So we don't have that yet. That's one of the things I often notice when going back and reading these early origin issues of Marvel Comics. Very often they don't really have the characterization or speech patterns down for these characters yet. Yes. And then that would sort of later go away a little bit when he was blue for a beast and he would be more of just a standard jokester type character without the big vocabulary words. He, for most of the original X-Men run, will be characterized by his big vocabulary, which he does not have yet here. Professor Saber says, I'm going to put you through your paces. Go ahead and try practicing. They don't call it the danger room yet, but it's basically the danger room. He's got various obstacles set up that he's making them jump around and fly around. And we get to see them all show off their powers, nicely drawn by Kirby. They go ahead and acknowledge that Iceman doesn't look like an Iceman yet. He looks like a snowman. They have him actually put a carrot on his face to turn himself into a snowman. And the Beast is like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to throw a bowling ball at you. But then he is. In fairness, Professor Xavier gives him a mental command to do so. (laughs) You're right. You're right. He's dressing up as a snowman with a with a carrot. And then Xavier is even worse. This is even worse, though, because Xavier had said, Iceman, you're the youngest of them. And yes, I know you want to do some of these same things that your other classmates are doing, but you can have five minutes of free play. Go, go play, child. And so he dressed up as a snowman. And he's like, now, while he's not paying attention, hit him with a bowling ball. (laughs) 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 Which I'm like, wow, you're just. You're you're kind of a dick. <laughs> can, yeah. can we say that on this? Uh, on <laughs> yes, we can say he's a dick. Okay, all right. We were watching you from the back, and we all thought you were a dick. Sorry, that's from, <laughs> a, that's from Michelin webbook. For the next sixty years, he will be a dick, and that begins here. Iceman handles just fine the fact that he's unexpectedly out of a bowling ball thrown at his head, creates a little ice shield to send it right back at the beast. We then get. Again, they've already gone through a lot of story and a lot of characters in their year and a half of stories. And the fact that they could come up with five heroes this iconic and this cool and totally different from anything else we'd seen before is very impressive. And they've come up yeah. with five really cool, interesting looking heroes, but especially Cyclops with his laser beams coming out of his eyes, which are very cool. And just in general, his sort of visor look is very iconic. So fortunately, fortunately, you as a white man can get away with accidentally calling them lasers. Other people will just be like, you're not a real comics fan. They're not lasers. They're force beams or, you know, whatever. Have you have you ever heard that thing before? Who was it? Was it Gail Simone who would actually bait folks online with that, like referring to his eye beams as lasers just to get some of the guys be like, see, you don't even know what you're talking about. They're not lasers. I enjoyed baiting such people by going like, oh, Pacific Rim, you mean monsters versus robots. And they'd be like, no, it's Kaiju versus Jaegers. And by the way, for everyone out there in podcast land, my last big job in comics, uh, or at least last one to this date, was actually on a prequel graphic novel for Pacific Rim. So, <laughs> so I have a Pacific Rim connection, which I oh, had to yeah. make sure to refer to as a gig, not a job. They told you you had to refer to it as a gig and not a job? No, I figured that out pretty quickly when I was telling people about my Pacific Rim gig. <laughs> I see. I see what you did there. <laughs> so, all it's right, kids safe. 
kids safe. We're being kids safe here. So then they all practice their powers for a while. And then Professor Tabor has some good news for them. You may be interested to learn that at this very moment, I sense a taxi approaching our main gate. Within that vehicle is a new pupil, a most attractive young lady. And we instantly get off on the wrong foot here, where he is inviting them to sexually harass and assault their new student constantly over the course of the next 60 issues, which begins here like a nuclear explosion. She's wearing this very sort of interesting 60s outfit. She's actually wearing a skirt rather than so many times we've seen women wearing suits. You know, she's not wearing a suit so much. She's wearing an interesting little tam on her head. She's wearing a neckerchief. She's wearing a sort of suit coat and then a fetching skirt underneath it. And this is Jean Grey, who will turn out to be one of the all-time great characters. He explains to her that they're called the X-Men because they have extra power. Then he introduces them all. They're all in their civvies now. Hank McCoy, known to us as the Beast, Bobby Drake, nicknamed Iceman, Slim Summers, our human cyclops, and Warren Worthington III, who is called the Angel. This is Miss Jean Grey. She will be known as Marble Girl, but for some reason that name will not stick. She will be known mainly as Jean Grey. She will frequently get killed and then come back to life, but she will have an epic comics history. Almost like a phoenix that way. Indeed, much like a phoenix. So right away, she comes off as pretty badass. They are trying to compete over who will offer her a chair. And she's like, I'll do it myself. And she uses her mental telekinesis to pull a chair out. Except for she doesn't call it telekinesis. She calls it teleportation. But it's clearly telekinesis. It's not teleportation at all. She takes out a book and reads it with her powers. It is very cool. She's clearly a more powerful character than Sue Storm has been up to this point or than the Wasp has been. She is potentially a very cool, very interesting character. Instantly, the sexual assault begins and never lets up. (laughs) Hank McCoy instantly grabs her and tries to kiss her. She flings him up to the ceiling, spins him around. All very good to see. She's like, oh, by the way, Professor X, why did you recruit me to school? He's like, oh, I'm glad you asked. It's because somebody wants to kill you and we're going to try to kill him. So so meanwhile, it's right here where they get the thing you would mention about his parents working on the first A-bomb project. The timing for that doesn't work out at all. No. Right. I mean, he, he would only be a few years older than Scott and Gene here, if that were true, right? Yeah. I mean, it's implying he was born sometime after 1945 or something. It doesn't make any sense. No. He's clearly supposed to be an older man. Yes. If his parents worked on the A-bomb project, it doesn't make any sense. Unless there was a secret World War One A-bomb project that exists only <laughs> in the Marvel Universe that we haven't heard about. He now explains to them, like, that's what I wanted to ask. Just what exactly is our real mission, sir? And he says, Gene, there are many mutants walking the earth and more are born each year. Not all of them want to help mankind. Some hate the human race and want to destroy it. Some feel that mutants should be the real rulers of earth. It is our job to protect mankind from those, from the evil mutants. So then we cut to Magneto. It's important to note with Magneto, we will not see him without his helmet off until issue 62 or so. Many years later, when Neil Adams is trying the book, and we won't get the sense until then that he's older, that in fact, he was a prisoner in Auschwitz. This will not be established until much later. The prisoner in Auschwitz thing, wasn't that actually Chris Claremont later in like the 70s or 80s? Right. Chris Claremont would make that up as a way to deepen and enrich the character. Then we get to one of my big issues with this book, or one of my big issues in the way people talk about this book. Then we get to Magneto, and he has no one helping him yet. He is working solo. He says, the moment is at hand. All my months of preparation and planning shall now pay off. The human race no longer deserves dominion over the planet Earth. The day of the mutants is upon us. The first phase of my plan shall be to show my power, to make homo sapiens bow to homo superior. Brian Cronin. I love Brian Cronin. He is, you know, maybe the all-time greatest writer about Marvel Comics. He has devoted the last 20 years of his life to writing about Marvel Comics every day on his blog and does a beautiful job writing about it. But he has a real bugaboo about this issue. And about the early days of the X-Men, he wrote a book. He's very focused on the X-Men. He wrote a book about the X-Men, 101 Things Every X-Men Fan Should Know and Do. He's a big fan of the X-Men. Generally speaking, Brian Cronin likes to talk about how much Stanley lies. And he's not a fan of Stanley. And he's always accusing Stanley of lying. And one of the more bizarre things he accuses Stanley of lying about is that Stanley would later say that when he created Professor X and Magneto, that he based them on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. He wanted to have... Professor X be sort of a Martin Luther King type figure and Magneto be sort of a Malcolm X type figure. And it is very important to Brian Cronin to insist that this is a lie. And this is not only a lie, but a lie that shows that Stanley always lies. And this couldn't possibly be true. Well, I, for one, believe it. I believe that these characters are based on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. 
And I think that one of the reasons that Brian Cronin doesn't believe it is that Brian Cronin's site sort of began as a Grant Morrison fan site right around the time that Grant Morrison had done X-Men. And Grant Morrison had made it clear that he thought that Magneto was sort of a loathsome figure and was not an honorable figure and was not an honorable man. As soon as Grant Morrison was off the book, Marvel was like, no, 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 that's not true. We're going to invite Chris Claremont to come back and prove that Magneto is an honorable figure. I think Marvel knew that he worked better as an honorable figure. They would certainly be able to get a lot of good movies out of him being a somewhat honorable figure but ultimately a villain. I think Brian Cronin sees this as like, this is Stanley trying to say that Magneto was always supposed to be an honorable hero and that he was based on Malcolm X. But I think that Brian Cronin is just not acknowledging the way Malcolm X was perceived in 1963. And really all the the way up into the 90s, at least. Growing up in a liberal family in Atlanta, I really didn't see Malcolm X's reputation being rehabilitated in the culture more broadly. And let me put it this way, in liberal white culture more broadly until the 90s. I really don't think it's a stretch to say, oh no, he could have seen this as being set up that way. And yes, he saw Magneto definitely as a villain you know, in that in that equation. But what do you think? Do you think it's possible that Stanley was telling the truth that he was thinking of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X when he created these characters? I don't know. People who don't know as much about comics, they'll hear things and then be like, oh, well, did you know? And one of the things they'll like to say is, oh, well, you know, when they first created this X-Men based on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Before I went back and reread this, I will often be like, yeah, well, that's mainly based on the writing that Chris Claremont did decades later. And he really was just pretty much a mustache twirling villain back in the early days. And the fact is, he was called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So if they were, it's not really saying much about, you know, it's it's not really saying like, oh, these are two sides of the same coin and both of them need to be listened to and respected. That's not really the way it works. Now, when we look back on here, I can see a little bit more of, Maybe he actually did mean that. And yeah, we just have to remember that even though Malcolm X is generally seen much more sympathetically in the last 30 years, he really wasn't before 30 years ago in wider white culture, basically. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I think that he very quickly, as we go forward here, became just sort of a standard villain. I think that that operating idea of the two of them as being these two different representations of an oppressed group and whether you're trying to fit into society or destroy society gets played up more later, but the seeds of it are here. You know, I wonder also if there was some element of Israel politics in here. There were some elements of this general sense of like, you know, you've got a minority group and you've got the assimilationists and you've got the militants. I think that that was playing out in Israel at the time. I think that was playing out in the civil rights movement at the time. And this is playing out here. And I think this is a very powerful idea that he is really tapping into here. Oh, yeah. People often act like, oh, it was all Claremont. Claremont brought that all in later. I think it's here. I think it's here in this issue. This whole idea of this very powerful sense of should we try to fit in and be model minorities or should we go ahead and say, no, 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 we actually can be better than these people and we should be acting from a place of pride or even arrogance. There's a lot going on here. So then we have Magneto, of course, screw with a missile test. (laughs) <laughs> we may break up September 1963 into two episodes. So this may have been in our previous episode where Merlin attacked Thor and messed up a missile test. There's clearly something going on here. Clearly there was some major part of our culture was focused on failed missile tests at the time and why they keep showing up in these Marvel comics. At the same time, there are a number of repetitive things going on this month, right? You have at least two issues where somebody has a crime committed against them and they're like, oh, I won't press charges and it comes back to bite them in the butt. We've had two issues where we have missile tests that go badly and then as the bad guy wrecks a missile test to do something or or other. There just seems to be a lot of stuff that's getting recycled this month. We're starting to have more issues per month than we've had before. So that's presumably part of it. Magneto decides, no, I'm just going to actually flat out attack this missile base entirely. And there's a great bit taken right out of Wizard of Oz where he has magnetized dust puddles in the air, spell out in the sky, surrender the base or I'll take it by force. And then this sort of dainty cursive signed <laughs> signature underneath it saying Magneto. Like, it's me, <laughs> Magneto. And, uh, I'm X- like, X-O-O. <laughs> <laughs> 
But now, Magneto, now that they've all seen your signature, they'll be able to forge checks from you. Don't you realize that? <laughs> yes. Uh, why don't you just put your social security number up, which at, that, which at that point, of course, wouldn't necessarily have been considered a dangerous thing to do either. Magneto goes ahead and attacks the army base. He takes it over. We've already played around with villains with magnetic powers in the past, but he goes all out with Magneto, really plays up the concept to its full strength for the first time. So then he takes control of Cape Citadel. I assume Cape Citadel isn't real, by the way. I I assume this is sort of just based on Cape Canaveral. That's what I thought, too. Although in Thor, we had Cape Door, which also seemed based on Cape Canaveral. Who knows? So then we get to, again, just horribleness with Jean Grey. She is trying on her outfit. She thinks, hmm, whoever designed this uniform could give Christian Dior a run for his money. And all the guys are just watching her try on the outfit. And she catches like literally peering around the corner, like hiding, sticking their heads out from around the corner. And one says, wow, we looks like she was poured into that uniform. (laughs) Just like (laughs) creeper, (laughs) creepy as hell. And then she's like, you again, honestly, can a girl have any privacy around her? He says, easy, gorgeous. We were just passing by. Don't go getting mad. The bee is seemingly the worst of the group here, even though he will later be better. And of course, we will many, many, many years later find out that Bobby Drake Iceman is gay. That will be one of the longest comings out in comic book history. And then it's this sort of thing where once it's revealed later on, they're like, oh, yeah, well, there were all those sort of hints over the years. But I don't think Stanley had any idea at this point. It's safe to say. No, not at all. I think at one point in here, isn't Bobby the one who's not being inappropriate to Gene? Like page eight, panel one, a girl, big deal. I'm glad I'm not a wolf like you guys. Yes, actually, he is being the one non-jerk in this whole thing. But then later, there's like, oh, yeah, well, that means you're gay. <laughs> I don't think it's like, I think they no, I think I, it was a good move to go ahead and have him be gay. And I think it was, <laughs> you know, they probably weren't planning on this for a long time, but it did make sense for the character. And it already makes sense here on page eight that he is the one who is uh, not the wolf of the group. They all get ready. They ride in a Rolls Royce to the airport, and then they fly to Cape Citadel in a mental-powered plane. And then they show up in their outfits, and they introduce themselves to the army, and they're like, we're going to take care of this guy. They do. They take care of it. There are awesome pages of them fighting missiles that he is throwing at them and doing all sorts of stuff. Lots of gorgeous art of them using their powers, Magneto using his powers against them. And then eventually... They convince him to flee. He realizes they've taken back control of the base. They're like, he's gone, but where? A mutant with his powers. He could be anywhere, but at least we've beaten him for now. You know, you would think that the army men running the base would be like, okay, you people are just as horrific as Magneto. What the hell is that? But no, <laughs> they're like, you call yourselves the X-Men. I will not ask you to reveal your true identities, but I promise you that before this day is over, the name X-Men will be the most honored in my command. And they go, thank you, sir. And should America's security ever be threatened again, the X-Men will be back. They fly home. They see Saver's mental image projected in the sky saying, well done, students. You have justified all our long hours of training, all our sacrifices, all our dreams. And now return to me, my X-Men. They tell us we should come back for issue number two. So I think this is an excellent issue. Obviously, the X-Men will in some ways turn out to be the most valuable franchise in Marvel history, Marvel's greatest selling book of all time will be the next X-Men number one. You can argue that the first great Marvel movie was the first X-Men movie or the first certainly blockbuster Marvel movie was the first X-Men movie. This will be the leading cutting edge of Marvel Comics at this point on. And I think this is an excellent first issue. These are excellent characters. They have got excellent designs. They really look beautiful. Magneto is clearly a fantastic villain. We're already getting great interactions between them. I think there's a lot going on here in terms of what that means to be a minority. Obviously, Stanley and Jack Kirby are not ideal civil rights leaders. They are white men, but they are both Jewish. There are elements, I think, here of what was going on with Jewish thought at the time in terms of being separatist or being assimilationist. And I think there's just a lot going on in this issue. I think it's a fantastic issue. Like I said, I really like the art combo in here of Kirby and Reinman. Yes, there are problems with some of the characterization. There are issues with how they're handling Jean Grey, and those are going to get worse next issue. Hopefully they will stabilize a little bit after that. (laughs) And it's funny, one thing that I guess we're going to get into next time we see the X-Men is there's some vague reference to Xavier having some kind of government connections. Yes. It's going to come up in the next issue. And then Claremont harkens back to that when he first takes over writing X-Men in the mid-70s, and it ends up being referenced in X-Men First Class. Right. They're like, it's almost like we're G-Men. 
but instead we're X-Men or something like that. You know, just all these little weird things that just because people keep on going back to the source material over and over and over again, the stuff that was originally just supposed to be disposable entertainment, you know, they just keep on finding all of these other different nuggets that they can use for various things. Yes, I think if this was supposed to be disposable entertainment, then we as a country have failed to dispose of it epically. (laughs) I think that... No one has yet disposed of the X-Men, nor will they ever. No, but we have upcycled it. Yes. But yes, uh, as you said, the X-Men will become their most valuable franchise, but it'll be a sleeper. It will be their least valuable franchise for the first 20 years or so, and then it will become their most valuable franchise. As Elliot Cohen talks about on Marvel by the Month, talked about finally Claremont starts writing the book in 1976. And it's like, oh, what if someone was writing X-Men and it wasn't the fifth book they wrote that month? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Amazing what you can do with it. (laughs) First with Stan, who's going to be on this book for about 18 issues, but then Roy is going to take over and Roy Thomas is going to write the book for much longer than Stan wrote it. But for both of them, it was not the first book they wrote that month. And neither of them brings the tender loving care to it. So when we talk about how, you know, this would go on to be the greatest Marvel franchise, that's to maybe... 40% to Stan and Jack and 60% to Chris Claremont. Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum and John Byrne and Len Wein. I mean, you got to give all them some of it. But yeah, it's probably more Chris Claremont than Stan and Jack. The Stan and Jack X-Men puttered along and were okay, despite help from great artists along the way, like Jim Steranko and Neil Adams. They just never really came into their own until the Chris Claremont era. But I think there's a lot of value here. Uh, Yes, I agree with you on that. I'm just saying, though, that they don't become the mega property that they will until at least the 70s. There's a lot of value here that did not get fully realized until Claremont took over the book in 1976. Okay, shall we move on to Avengers number one? You tackle Avengers number one. Who, boy, this is one of the nuttiest issues of Marvel Comics ever published. It really is. It's so weird in many ways. Okay, so here's one thing that I have, and once again, one of these things I didn't go look up and go reference and get the documentation on here, but it is my memory that Avengers was a last-minute replacement book. For Daredevil. Yes, okay, okay, that's the story I'd heard. And then when that book got delayed, they were like, hey, maybe we should finally give Martin Goodman what he asked for in the first place, which is... (laughs) Marvel's version of the Justice League. And they had never delivered. Martin Goodman had said, I want Marvel's version of the Justice League. And Stanley had been like, okay, I will give you everything but that and create this whole amazing Marvel universe and still never deliver that. And then it was only when Daredevil ended up being, and we'll talk about Daredevil more when he actually debuts, but it was only when that book became massively delayed for various reasons that he's like, ah, why not? We've got space to fill this month. Let's actually create the Avengers. Yeah, so and that's, I think, one of the reasons why this ends up coming across as such a weird issue. I mean, not weird, yes. but it's a bonkers issue. It's just sort of like a last minute thing they just kind of threw together, as at least that's the way the story goes. And it certainly feels like a last minute name. I don't think anybody gave oh, yeah. any thought to the name The Avengers. No. Was The Avengers British TV show running at this point? It was. In Britain, it's unclear to me if any episodes had aired in the United States at this point. I think they had. I think maybe the Patrick McNee Honor Blackman episodes had started airing in the United States. So that clearly, like, that's got to be the source of it, right? Like, it's just such a weird name. It or, is. I mean, it made more sense. On the British show, they were like the secret agents were sent in once a secret agent was killed on the job and they were sent in to avenge them, although they never really played up that aspect. It had become much more of a silly show. It had had a very serious first season in Britain with two guys as the stars, and then they had replaced one of the guys with a series of fashionable women and it had become more of a silly show. They had kept the name The Avengers. Surely that must have influenced Stan here because it's such a weird name. and. Yeah. As it's been pointed out many times, the Avengers have nothing to avenge. They're not on any sort of mission to avenge or revenge or... Avenge, revenge, vengeance, any of those venging things. Stonevenge. (laughs) Nothing on the spectrum (laughs) of venge is going on here. Yes. So somehow they ended up quickly turning out this book and quickly coming up with the name The Avengers, which, who boy, would have some major pop cultural legs to it. On the cover, it says Thor, Ant-Man, Hulk, Iron Man. Wasp gets short shrift here, oddly enough. Yes, she does. Avengers, or she's on the cover, 
but she does not get name checked. Earth's Mightiest Superheroes, and then they're all facing off against Loki. Thor swinging his hammer there on the cover. The hammer is currently on the back part of the circle, and then it comes forward, and it's still behind his arm. Yes. <laughs> comic book physics for you. We start out, and we see that Loki wants to defeat Thor. So he goes and looks for him mentally through the universe and sees that he is currently in Don Blake form. He's like, ugh. That would, just wouldn't be any fun to get Don Blake. I want to get Thor. So how do I get him to turn into Thor so I can figure out a way to beat him? So then his roving eyes go through and find the Hulk. Now, of course, the Hulk's book has been canceled for a number of months at this point. Did we already see him show up in Fantastic Four at one point since then? I think yes. we did, right? Yeah. Yes. So he has shown up just once since his book was canceled, but he's apparently still bouncing around in the desert southwest. Loki then thinks, hmm, I could use him to try and draw out Thor. He tricks Hulk into thinking that there is dynamite on a train trestle. And Hulk, who, because Jack Kirby is drawing him, can fly in the art, but not in the words, swoops Very explicitly down. in the words. No, he can't fly. Yes, but in the art, he clearly can fly. Loki makes him think he sees some dynamite that's about to take out the train trestle. And the Hulk, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and save the bridge because that doesn't really seem like the Hulk. But, you know, the Hulk's personality is different at this point. But the dynamite wasn't actually there. And so somehow that causes him to accidentally wreck the bridge. It's a little unclear how that works. The train is coming ahead and it looks like, what is that? Probably the Southwest Chief. I know my our dad would know. My, our, our dad's <laughs> yes, a huge train buff. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say the Southwest Chief. So it's barreling along and they now see that the bridge is out and they're going to wreck. But then the Hulk actually is able to repair the bridge just with the strength of his own back, just long enough for the train to make it over. So he actually saves the train, but all anyone actually sees is, hey, the Hulk was there. And we thought the train was going to wreck, but it didn't. But then by the time the train was gone, the bridge was wrecked. So the Hulk is trying to wreck bridges and wreck trains, which is totally unfair, obviously. Rick Jones. So this is this so the previous time we had the Hulk show up in another superhero book was in the Fantastic Four. There was a villain who framed him as the wrecker here. Right. Once again, it's like Stanley has forgotten he's already done this story. But then once again, they're going like oh, you know, it's the Wrecker, it's the Hulk. He's once again being framed as a Wrecker and a bunch of other Marvel superheroes will have to stop him. It says, trained engineer identifies Hulk as would-be Wrecker. We then see Rick Jones reading in the newspaper about the Hulk attacking this train. And he's like, nah, that doesn't sound like him. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. But, you know, I don't know. The Hulk can be a loose cannon. You know, we need some backup here. So then he goes and gets the Teen Brigade, whom we have not seen since Hulk number six. He gets them together to radio the Fantastic Four so he can get out here and help get to the bottom of what's going on with the Hulk, and if he actually has turned against humanity. They send out this radio call on some kind of special Fantastic Four frequency that apparently he has. It's interesting, on the bottom page four, we see the little signal coming out from what looks like South Texas to me. Yeah. Whereas usually I think of it as being in New Mexico or Arizona or Nevada, you know, somewhere not in New York. <laughs> you know, As our New York grandmother once said uh, when she found out how far away Atlanta and Fort Smith, Arkansas, where our dad was from, she was like, I thought all those southern cities were close together. Yes. This is that same sort of thing. Or when we saw Rent on its farewell tour just this past week, we had seen it on its first national tour. And that time uh, it was delayed showing up here because the booking agent in New York had booked them to strike set in Texas one day and then be set up in Greensboro, North Carolina, <laughs> 24 hours later. So strike set, drive all the way from Texas to North Carolina, set the set back up again. And they're like, um, that doesn't work. So they had to reschedule. No. Besides of people in New York not really having any idea where geography is outside of New York. Loki is like, oh, no, the Fantastic Four will ruin everything. So I will go ahead and use my powers to divert the special signal that goes to the Fantastic Four special frequency and send it instead into Don Blake's just office radio. Don Blake is like, oh, okay, Teen Brigade. Um, yeah, okay, let me go and help them out. Turns into Thor. But it turns out that this diverted signal also happens to end up being picked up by Ant-Man and by Iron Man. So all of these folks happen to have accidentally gotten this thing meant for the Fantastic Four. 
the teen brigade is waiting to hear word back. And they're like, why haven't we heard from the Fantastic Four? What's going on? Well, we see Ant-Man and the Wasp. Get this. So once again, the Wasp can fly. I cannot stress this enough. The Wasp (laughs) has wings. She can fly. But now Ant-Man, it turns out, to show that he is in a committed relationship now, he has built a double antibolt. She says, Hank Pym, you're beginning to sound like a stuffy old bachelor again. And he says, and I intend to remain that way. Now see if you can't be quiet long enough for me to activate the double catapult. He puts them both in a little twin cannon, which he fires off. And she is saying, quite logically, why do I have to rely on your silly flying ant relays? I happen to have my own wings. And he says, but we've got a thousand miles to cover, Jan, and you don't want to get exhausted when we get there. So they shoot out of a double cannon, and then they land on two flying ants each that they're going to ride like water skis (laughs) for a thousand miles for a thousand miles (laughs) (laughs) so that she doesn't get tired using her own wings and oh incidentally i didn't think to give myself any wings so i have to do this anyway it is truly bizarre one of many many truly bizarre things in this book and then on the next page we get as you were talking about matt iron man liking to travel vertically he is flying down the highway but he is flying in a standing position for a while until he eventually then goes ahead and starts flying more like a superman type flight the teen brigade finally hears back from the fantastic four they're like oh that's great oh yeah we were doing some other stuff you sent this on the wrong frequency i don't know what's up with that what was up with that of course was loki as far as we can tell i think that some other people who can help you got your message if you still need any backup from us you can call us back they're like what are they talking about and then that's when thor and iron man and ant-man and the wasp all happen to show up at that exact moment in their little clubhouse i think i've mentioned before that i am a big fan of the marvel comics themed deck building card game called legendary And for a while, I had gotten into custom card creation. Fans create their own cards based on stuff. I came up with my own backup adversary group called the Teen Brigade, and I used panel three of page seven here. I took that image of all the uh, teenagers pointing and looking and gasping as the image that was used on the card. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They all show up and they're like, you know, what can we do? Meanwhile, Loki is once again seeing that this whole team of people has shown up and he's like, no, I just want to get Thor and this is going to get in my way. So then he decides to make an illusion of the Hulk outside the window that only Thor sees. So then he heads out to try and fight the Hulk, finds out it's an illusion, and he's like, only Loki could do this illusion. So I'm going to go to Asgard to find out what's going on. Loki's like, finally. So meanwhile, everyone else is like, where did Thor get to? And they don't know. But meanwhile, we see that the Hulk is actually hiding out by disguising himself as a super strong robot in the circus that is juggling elephants and horses and what is that a seal yes and he's wearing clown makeup don't forget that he's wearing clown makeup yes which makes it clear he's a robot because clown makeup. yes <laughs> yes and, I, and i'm sure the i'm sure the aspca is totally cool <laughs> with juggling elephants and horses maybe the biggest meanwhile in the course of comic book history <laughs> where like meanwhile the hulk has decided, what am I going to do in this world? Where is the place for me in this world? I'm going to get a job at a circus. I'm going to pretend to be a robot. I'm going to continue to be green, wear clown makeup over my obviously green skin, claim to be a robot, get a job juggling. And Kirby could not do a more amazing job of what is going on for this poor elephant as he is being juggled. This elephant is being juggled. Like if you were to tell an artist right now, show me an elephant that is in the middle of being juggled. There is not an artist alive who could do as good a job with that request as Jack Kirby does with this elephant and the horse and the seal are all clearly being juggled. This is one of my all time favorite panels in a Marvel comic book, just for sheer insanity and fun. It is a delight. So Hulk is hiding out in plain sight in the circus. Ant-Man figures out where he is because of his ants, and then his ants make a sinkhole underneath the Hulk to try and get him away from the circus so he can try to convince him he's a friend, and they're trying to figure out what's going on because he's being hunted. Hulk is not buying this, and then he uses a bellows that he gets from who knows where. (laughs) Just sitting around. Exactly, on Hank and Jan. Iron Man shows up. And he chases the Hulk. The Hulk jumps away and he's trying to jump through the actual big top canvas itself. But apparently the 
ants have laid down nylon netting, strangely enough. Apparently, nylon is strong enough to hold the Hulk, kind of. Yes. But this is another place where the Hulk clearly is flying because he jumps up, gets caught by the net, but then because of his strength, he is able to struggle through the net upwards. But he cannot fly. He cannot fly, but he just flew, and he cannot fly. Kirby and Lee still have not come to a satisfying agreement on this. They have not reached a rapprochement. No, they have not. And then on page 14, we then see the Hulk outmaneuvering Iron Man in the sky, too. (laughs) Again, then we cut away to Thor. He is now in Asgard, where he is asking permission from his father, Odin, whose helmet is once again fabulous. (laughs) So we get to see Kirby drawing Odin. I think think the first time. Kirby's all-time favorite character. We've never seen Kirby draw? No, no, no. No, we saw Kirby draw Odin quite a bit Okay, in the early days. I would say Odin is the character that is the Kirbyest Kirby character of all time. You know, maybe Darkseid, maybe a couple others. But Odin is the character who Kirby gave himself this rule. He always had to have a different helmet. He always had a different throne. Every time you saw him, Kirby is once again instantly excelling at doing Odin, who has a fantastic hat, as he always will. Oh, yes. Fabulous hat wear. He gets permission to go on this journey through these dark parts of Asgard to the island where Loki is being held prisoner. But Odin says, but I cannot interfere between the two of you. That's part of the deal of you being able to go there. He says, I understand. So then we have a great sequence over the next page of Thor traveling through this swamp and this dark, looks like a mangrove forest and tossed around on turbulent seas and then being attacked by some stuff that uh, Loki is sending out from the island that he has gained more power over. We then get our, I believe, our first sight of the Asgardian trolls. Yes. Is this not the first time we've laid eyes upon the trolls? It is. It is. So the trolls supposedly have a grip that cannot be broken. Thor uses lightning. They live underground. They cannot stand it. And so they let go of him, not through strength, but through trickery, basically. Loki is creating all sorts of illusions to make him hard to catch. But eventually Thor overcomes the illusions and drags Loki down to Earth so that the other heroes can help in the fight, which is exactly what Loki has been trying to avoid this whole time. He wants to have Thor isolated where he can get him. Meanwhile, then the Hulk, after escaping through the nylon-coated tent, jumps all the way to Detroit for no reason. Seemingly, he says, finally, on the ground again, inside a huge auto factory. And when I think huge auto factory in 1963, I didn't Detroit. That would be a heck of a lot of travel for this battle to happen. Maybe it's a huge auto factory in the Southwest, but it certainly looks like Detroit to me. No, Matt, on the top of page 19, Iron Man comes up to this plane and says, attention, this is Iron Man. Have you seen the Hulk? Repeat. Oh, they say Detroit. And one of the pilots say, he just whizzed past us, looked like he was heading toward Detroit. Yeah. Okay. He he didn't realize they actually said Detroit. Yes, this this (laughs) has been one hell of an epic chase that has taken them from the Southwest to Detroit. Well, first from New York to the Southwest to Detroit. Yes. They have a fantastic battle in this auto factory. Towards the end of this, Loki starts giving off radiation. It looks like he's about to defeat the Avengers, but then the ants are able to somehow open a trap door under Loki and send him through a chute into a lead-lined tank. Because, as we find out later in the page, apparently there's some reason that Detroit auto manufacturers have to have trucks come by to dispose of atomic test material. What was that doing in a Detroit auto factory? (laughs) Okay, I thought you were just making that up, what you just said. Thor says, (laughs) this is where the trucks, which carry radioactive waste from atomic tests, dump their loads for eventual disposal in the ocean. Um, How did the United Auto Workers feel about this exactly? Is this in the job description of Detroit auto workers? Also, isn't this the whole reason that we just got invaded by Atlantis because of us (laughs) dumping radiation in the ocean? (laughs) So all sorts of issues with this. Of course, we never found a place to put our radioactive waste, and we still haven't. And it's still just sitting in some sort of temporary facility out in like Nevada or something like that, because there's like what the whole salt mine that we're supposedly going to put it in permanently, but they can never figure it out. I don't know. Anyway. Yes. Which has permeable ground underneath it. Yes. Anyway, one way or the other, they get him sealed in this lead-lined tank. 
Thor says he won't be radioactive for long. And then when he is no longer radioactive, I'll get him out of there and take him back to Asgard for punishment. Then they're like, oh, well, hold on. Wait, as long as we're all here, you know, there might be other big things that come up from time to time. Maybe we should uh, get together on a regular basis to uh, take care of those things. Hank and Jan and Thor and Iron Man are all in for it. Hulk. It is the Wasp who comes up with the name of the Avengers, which. Hold on. We'll, We'll get to that in a second. Before that, the Hulk, he basically just joins because he's like, well, I don't want you guys fighting me, so I may as well be one of you so we can be fighting somebody else. But of course, he doesn't remain an Avenger long at all. So even though the general public has this vision of him as being an integral Avenger, yes, he was one of the founders, but he's only in the Avengers for like an issue and a half, basically. Despite that, in the Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon, he was a regular longstanding member. And in the MCU, obviously, he's been a regular longstanding member particularly since they don't have distribution rights for Hulk movies by themselves. Marvel doesn't want to do any more where they have to pay universal money, so they just put him in movies with other characters instead. Yeah. Okay, so then you wanted to say something about the Avengers name and Jan. Yeah, good trivia. I took a 1960s Marvel Comics quiz at one point, and they did ask on that quiz who came up with the name of the Avengers. So I was glad I knew it. It is the Wasp. The Wasp comes up with the name of the Avengers. Indeed. As we noticed, we were going through the story where she was introduced. She was talking about vengeance right from her first appearance because her father was killed and she wanted to avenge him. Yes. It seems really out of character. And as you said, it is sort of an odd name for a superhero group. But somehow you can say it does make some sense. Yeah. For her, and I guess for Hank, who is avenging his dead wife, but uh, I'm not sure whether Thor and Iron Man are avenging. So right away, we got to say that the Avengers doesn't work to a certain extent. It doesn't make any sense to have Hulk on the team. It's really strange not to have Spider-Man on the team, that this isn't really the greatest Marvel heroes. This is sort of the second greatest Marvel heroes after Spider-Man. But there was a sense like, well, it wouldn't really make sense to have Spider-Man on the team, just like it doesn't really make sense to have Hulk on the team. You instantly get this question of like, okay, what is this comic? What is this comic going to try to do? What is it going to try to be? Is it going to try to be the... Marvel's answer to the Justice League, or can Marvel really sustain something like the Justice League? Does the Justice League only work when you have bland, generic heroes, like the bland, generic DC heroes who can easily be mixed and matched in any combination? And once you get to these beautifully written Marvel heroes with their complex, distinctive, abrasive personalities, can you actually mix and match them? Can you combine them in a hero book? And this will be a huge problem for the Avengers and also this issue of trying to maintain continuity when the Thor will be coming more and more having Asgard based adventures. Iron Man will have his own issues going on and everybody will have their own issues going on until they sort of cut the Gordian knot with issue 16 when they say, no, we're not going to do Justice League anymore. We're going to have only members of the Avengers who are only going to appear in the Avengers book. We're only going to appear in modern day in the Avengers book. That is going to be when the Avengers sort of start making sense as something entirely different from Marvel's Justice League in issue 16. And until then, things are going to be rather tenuous. Well, I mean, even when you get to that point, you're like, oh yeah, well, they sort of seem to make some sense. At that point, you've got Captain America and three until that very moment, villains. Yeah. <laughs> it's still, that's really weird. But yeah, it does sort of just say, we're just going to go off and we're going to be weird and we're going to do our own thing rather than trying to be a Justice League. One of the things I find is that an interesting thing about the difference between the Justice League and the Avengers in the later 60s. So Marvel had the Avengers attacked by basically a pseudo Justice League. So you had very obvious analogs to Superman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Batman, Flash, all attack the Avengers. And this has gone on to be called, has various incarnations over the years, Squadron Sinister, Squadron Supreme, Utopolis apparently is another name it's gone by in recent years. And the thing is, you see these characters in Marvel Comics, and it is clear these are DC character analogs. Well, DC. I don't know whether it was as a legal thing or whether it was just sort of a good-hearted sort of back-and-forth sort of thing. I'm a little unclear on that. But one way or the other, DC basically did the same thing back to Marvel, where they had analogs to the Marvel characters that showed up in Justice League. Mm -hmm. The thing is, those characters in Justice League, no one really got it. It wasn't like, oh, that's clearly Thor. 
you know, and oh, there's Captain America. Later, I've had these characters pointed out that still exist in the DC universe. And it's sort of like, oh, oh, that's supposed to be like a Thor-like character? Oh, I guess maybe so. What did you say about DC characters being bland or boring or something like that? Generic, yeah. Generic. I would say instead of generic, it's more like archetypal. Yeah. The DC characters are more like archetypes. Whereas the Marvel characters are more like soap operas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They both have their own strengths and weaknesses in terms of creating a mythology and telling stories and characterization and all sorts of things. Uh, Obviously, we are here doing this about Marvel stuff. The two of us largely fall on the side of how Marvel handled these things. I think just calling them generic, I don't think quite is fair. Really think it's just they're a different kind of character. They really are just more, uh, you know, archetypal. But they definitely had less personality. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, at this point in 1963, they had been publishing Green Arrow comics every month for the last 20 years, and he had never shown the slightest shred of personality in 1963. He would soon get a great personality as they brought on some other writers. It was amazing how little personality Aquaman had and Green Arrow had. Batman and Superman had a little more, but it made it much easier to do a team book than trying to shoehorn the Hulk into any sort of adventure with anybody else. Okay, well, this is an epic month. I think that you said in the previous episode that you can make an argument that we are witnessing the birth of Marvel Stage 3. Yeah, Marvel Phase 3. Yeah, that we had Marvel Phase 1 started at Fantastic Four number 1. Marvel Phase 2 began... I think it was when the Hulk first showed up as a guest star in the Fantastic Four. Yeah, Fantastic Four was, number 13, yeah. Right, and that was right around the same time that Spider-Man showed up, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. More importantly, Marvel Phase 2 would be when Stan and Jack weren't doing every book anymore, and Don Heck right. was brought in, and Dicko was brought in. It wasn't just Stan and Jack's world anymore. So this is now sort of Phase 3, where we get the X-Men, we get the Avengers, we get much more crossover, much more continuity, much more of an idea that this is a shared world that all of these characters are in and interacting in that have, hey, if you want to know what's going on in the Marvel Universe, you got to buy all these things. You know, it's sort of like the really the beginning of that sort of thing here. Yeah, some big stuff. A monumentous month. And that's why we, uh, despite our best efforts, still are going to have to be splitting this one up into two episodes. But I think I like how we managed to keep the more forgettable books down to five minutes. I think that that's going to keep this podcast alive to a certain extent. Hopefully there will be some months from this point on that don't get broken into two episodes. Maybe not. Maybe at this point, it's going to be two episodes per month for every month, but we will see. So this, uh, I'm going to go ahead and go to bed here. It's on nearly 1 a.m. my time. This has been good. I have enjoyed it. Thanks for your time, Matt. And thanks for everybody's time out there in podcast land. Yes. Thanks so much, guys. This was a lot of fun. It was fun turning this big corner with you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Stay safe out there. Yeah. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.